Welcome to On Culture. On this podcast, we talk about culture and faith and the world and our place in it. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our work and explore all of our content on our website, theembassy.substack.com. Here's Mike. Welcome back to another episode of On Culture. On Culture is the podcast for the Embassy newsletter. Uh, And so we're going to be talking about the latest dispatch from the Embassy. I'm joined by Susan James. Susan has uh, joined me before. Susan's a therapist and uh, a friend. And we're going to discuss um, things that uh, perhaps apply to her world and to the wider world, uh, I guess to all of our worlds, hopefully. Uh, How are you doing, Susan? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, let me just take a moment and uh, sort of recap the uh, the latest dispatch from the embassy, or at least the bigger part of it. Um, it's called you know, How Things Don't Change, and it kind of has politics as a backdrop, um, but it's not really about politics. Politics is just a really good and timely uh, illustration uh, of what we're talking about here. This uh, podcast should drop a couple of days before uh, the next big election a cycle. And I do mention, that, you know, we're in this season of politics. Uh, I don't watch a lot of live TV, but, it, you know, uh, when I do, like if even if it's just watching a football game or something or you having it on in the background, there's just lots of ads. Uh, I do think there's more Illinois ads this cycle for whatever reason. I don't know if the races in Missouri are uh, you know, not as close, but we do get be living here in the St. Louis area. We do get Missouri, we do get St. Louis, and we get Illinois. Uh, so it's uh, a double whammy of of those ads, which are all pretty. Uh, I do I do kind of tongue in cheek give a, a glowing description of a political ad is, which is of course completely wrong. Uh, they're all demonization. They're very. They're almost parodies of each. Of, of themselves. They're so over the top, the grainy, you know, unflattering photo of the opponent and the demonization and oversimplification and, you know, all of this sort of, and it, you know, their elected life as we know it comes to an end. And if I'm elected, everything will be wonderful. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of the, uh, the, the theme, the overriding theme. And it's more the first one than the second one. It's more the they're not promising as much uh, for themselves. They're just saying, boy, it's if, if the other person gets elected, we, we may not survive as a country. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of the theme. Um, I did mention one of our one of our children did uh, was in a school election uh, years and years ago and uh, contemplated at least might have used the slogan, I will make all your dreams come true, uh, which is, you know, that's sort of kind of what gets bundled up into politics uh, nowadays that we have to elect this person. If we elect this person, it'll be all right. Uh, if we don't elect the other person, it won't be. And it kind of, this is the pattern of how things don't change. It's just how politics illustrates this pattern of oversimplification, demonization, scapegoating. Uh, so we can't compromise. Uh, we look for some golden solution, some gold, you know, some silver bullet that that uh, you know fixes the problem, 
the problem is out there somewhere. It's the other person. It's the boss. It's the pastor. It's the spouse. Uh, it's, you know, it's labelable. It's an abstraction. Uh, and we want to hold on to our simple narrative, our oversimplification, our outrage, all of that stuff, rather than really dig into the problem and to solve it. Uh, and I mentioned a little bit about uh, Ronald Heifetz and the a technical solution versus an adaptive solution. And that sort of, uh, you know, some language around that, it would be helpful to, to read that part of the piece. But basically, technical solutions are provided solutions by experts. Uh, and adaptive solutions require participation and change and so on. And we kind of want to make everything a technical solution that's provided. Take a pill, write a check, get an, oper get an operation, uh, whatever it might be. Do this thing and the problem will be solved. And most of life isn't like that. Uh, and then I close with some discussion of uh, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. And we can get to that later, talking about planks and specks. And what is what might be a familiar passage to some. So, with all of that as the backdrop for this discussion, uh, what do you think about my description of how things don't change and how perhaps politics is a a timely illustration of all of that? Well, I think that um, it's easy to see how the demonization of the other, the people who we don't agree with, is not going to lead to change. Because I think change um, not only um, requires um, us owning some responsibility or at least the ability to listen to others, but also to have a conversation. And it's obvious in those campaign ads especially, and even, you know, when you see the politics and the um, government working, you know, on the media, what have you, there's not a, a lot of real conversations had. It's mm -hmm. all about blaming the other and no one's really listening. So, you know, how can you get change out of that? You can't. You can't get change out of that because that's not really the way the problem, I mean, you know, that's mm -hmm. not a correct description. If it was, if that actually correctly described the problem that, the, you know, we just need to do this one thing and it fixes it. We need to eliminate this one person. We need to get this one person elected. Then that would at least be, you know, something. But mm -hmm. in real, in the real world, that's not the way real problems are. That they're complicated, yeah. right? I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's over, the problems have been oversimplified and the solutions have been oversimplified. And I think that um, we even refuse to see that maybe others can offer some um, some good ideas, and they may not be always people that we agree with, but because we don't agree with them, and because maybe we demonized them or counted them as the other, that um, we aren't willing to listen and uh, collaborate on maybe a complex solution to a complex problem. But we... Mm -hmm. You know, instead, we have to be the ones that are right. And how often is that in our home when, you know, we get in maybe some beginning discussions in our workplace or in our homes where we have to be the one that's right? Often we don't listen to the other. We're not even able to listen to the other because it's not what we have said in our own minds. So how far can we get with that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it seems like there's a lot there. Um, let me start, I guess, where you started, the oversimplification of problems. So what? It, obviously, we have a tendency to do that. So what does that get us? What does, why do we oversimplify problems that, uh, that have some in connection to us, that have some involvement to us? What does that, what does that do for us? What's the incentive for me to oversimplify? Um, I think when we oversimplify the problems, it makes it more uh, accessible for us to have a simple solution for it. So it's, um, you don't have to engage with the other. You can have it overall, um, my ideas, um, my ways, my group, the people who I belong to and identify with. Um, we can come up with it on our own, and that's usually just not the case. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's more people involved. And we, when we oversimplify, we don't have to engage the other you know, as much, I don't think or it doesn't require as much of us. And um, how long are people really going to listen to a complex solution maybe as well? If you mm -hmm. simplify the solution, if, you know, and you have an audience and like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's a simple problem mm -hmm. and offers a simple solution. We have the answer to it, you know, mm -hmm. get buy-in. Yes. So there's the aspect of an oversimplified problem leads to a simple solution. We like solutions uh to say that the solution is going to be difficult or hard or prolonged or whatever i mean that actually could be scary depending on the problem mm -hmm. uh right yes and i also think that people want to hear that there's a solution you know that mm -hmm. there's certainty you know that's comforting to us to know that there's certainty about something and to be honest with you i'm not so sure how much certainty there is in our world it's mm -hmm. it's it's messy you know, especially, you know, the fallen world, it's not black and white. And I think we tend to want more black and white, right and wrong, bad or good. Um, yeah, that's right. easiest for us. That's easier for us to grab a hold of. And um, we don't want the messy. We don't want the gray area. Um, that's scarier. Um, so, you know, I think that's why we t tend to simplify and yeah, so there's an incentive to not recognize the reality of uh, the problem, whatever it is, some large, let's say, political issue, let's say the debt or the border or something that's not, that is kind of big and prolonged and so on. We want to say, well, we just need to just do this and that solves the problem uh, because to say otherwise is sort of to recognize man we live sort of in a broken world and there aren't there isn't an easy problem for this and i have to live in that world and i don't want to live in that world i want to live in a world where if everyone just did what i said all the problems would be solved mm -hmm. a but i think b that the solution i mean i oversimplify also in order to move the problem away from me right? That, mm. that it, you know, you're the problem. They're the problem. The other party's the problem. Uh, the, my boss is the problem. My pastor's the problem. My spouse is the problem. My kids are the problem. My parents are the problem, whatever. And the whole, the problem formulation is, you know, 
my my point isn't that when I say, uh, or you know, when they are the problem, that um, no, they're not really the problem. My point more is that nobody or nothing or very very few things are the problem, mm-hmm. as if there's one guilty party you know there's one imperfect variable in the equation if we could just fix that everything else would be good and that i don't that's not the world we live in and that any problem that involves me i'm probably part of the problem i mean i'm probably contributing to it in some way right Mm -hmm. yes and how often we you know aren't always willing to take responsibility for our part in that yeah, especially if the problem makes me mad, mm-hmm. uh, right? Or, you know, it, you know, it's easy to be mad at somebody else than to be mad at yourself or to, you know, look in the mirror. Uh, and so all of that, for all of that, I mean, those are powerful incentives to they say are. the problem is out there and I'm not a part of it. I'm the victim completely. And uh, I, I do think one of the key one of my key realizations somewhere along the line was that uh, I am not the victim uh, or even the perpetrator, that I'm almost always both, that, you know, in any sort of long-term, you know, situation, I've both wronged other people and I've been wronged. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very helpful realization, even because you can always, if you've any sort of long-term situation, you can always point to the things you've been wronged, Mm. the people you've been wronged by, and be right. You're correct about that. And you can just stop right there and live there forever. And then, but not, Which would be the victim mentality, right? Right, right. And that's obviously, there's some comfort to that, even if you don't want to think of yourself as as the victim, you just you don't have to think of yourself as the victimizer. You don't have to blame yourself. Right. There's nothing. Even if you like, oh, I forgive them and I've moved on, which is good if you have. Mm-hmm. But there might be more to might be more to it than than that, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that those are all. That's a pretty powerful motivator to uh, to oversimplify and to move the problem away from me. Right. And to be able to stay in that. Righteous state, the state of mm-hmm. righteousness, state of righteousness. Yes. Right? It's all them, not me. If they would just do this or if we would just do this or. Yeah. And sometimes you pay lip service. Well, I'm sure I'm part of the problem, too. But mm-hmm. but you don't really mean that in any sort of real way. You know, that's sort well, of right. What that would mean is that um, you would gain some self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times people are afraid of that, afraid of um, the awareness that maybe they had a part that they played. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, it's interesting. I do think that there's a, um, I think there's a lot of things that play into this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of even uh, the oversimplification of the Christian faith uh, or the oversimplification of how the Christian life is lived um, sometimes causes people, when they discover, hey, it's not that simple, to reject the whole thing, rather than mm-hmm. to say, well, I can live the Christian life, but it's 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 a lot more complicated than that. Right. Uh, they throw out the ways, baby it, with the bathwater. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you can understand why, because they feel right. like maybe they've been lied to all mm-hmm. along, and that's not really what Christianity is like, so maybe I'm going to throw the whole thing out. Uh, I know people who, I, I mean, many of the people I read are on one side of the political spectrum mostly, but mm-hmm. they're like heterodox, and they found out, oh, the side that I've always sort of listen to isn't right about some of this stuff, whatever that might be. And some of them go all the way over then, in a sense, change sides. It's the same sort of phenomenon where, oh, I think I've been lied to this whole time, or I believed a lie. Now I'm going to jump over here. And you almost, like, you have to be on a team. And I think that that's sort of what I'm trying to identify. And I think people are like this politically. I have to be on a team. So if I don't like my team anymore, I have to change teams rather than to say I'm not really on a team uh, mm-hmm. and I have to live in the world in which nobody really speaks my views totally. I'm not on a side. I'm not. There's something sort of uncomfortable about that. And I think that's one of the reasons we tend to avoid it. It's just simpler to be on a side. We're the good team. They're the bad team. And right. Because that... I think in the in between, there's more opportunity if you're having conversations with both sides and you um might uh lean towards one side in one view and the other side another view there's going to be some rejection there Mm -hmm. you know from the sides that are very um on their team per se you know and so you set yourself up for rejection and that's a really hard thing sure yeah in a sense you're totally accepted by neither side right and right yeah um, yeah, so I think there's, I mean, that's a powerful pattern. I think it does replay a lot, uh, you know, in not just, you know, politics does sort of, especially now, cause we're pretty polarized. It's a, it's a pretty obvious example, whichever side you tend to, to favor. I think everyone can sort of admit we're, we're polarized and it's a, uh, mm-hmm. this sort of phenomenon of, you know, they're the problem. No, they're the problem. Um, that but that uh that transfers over i think into our lives into families into relationships into employment into churches and then it's the same sort of thing once you get into the habit of saying it that's the person that the person's the problem or it's this ministry or this pastor or this person um then it's just it's once you start doing it it's just super easy to do and then yes. you're never the problem you never have to look in the mirror you know it's always somebody else somewhere right Right. I guess the most, um, the hardest thing for me is the dehumanizing that's, that's going on, you know, especially on social media and what have you. It's just, it's pretty disturbing because, you know, as Christians, um, you know, we are humans and we all have dignity. And, um, even if we don't agree with someone, it feels like we you know, or to engage that dignity, but yet somehow um, we've painted, you know, good and evil, black and white, bad and good, and just something feels really yucky about that on both sides, on either side, on whatever side, you know? Yeah, right. So that's the other side of the coin that I've been talking about is, I mean, I've been talking about our side where it's it's easy to think you're the, on the good team. Mm-hmm. But once you start thinking of the other people as the bad team and whoever that whoever that might be, but it does obviously fit every, every political ad has that sort of flavor to it. It seems like um, that it's I mean, if they're just evil, 
if they're just, you know, you dehumanize them, demonize them, well, then you're never going to work together. You can only defeat them. And you, mm -hmm. you, know, you can only address the problem by eliminating the demons, you know, the, you know, right. the horrible people over there. And obviously that's a recipe for not solve because you're, you don't have the power, first of all, to do that. Right. If you, if you could do it, it wouldn't actually fix the problem, but you can't do it anyway. But actually right? it becomes about power. I mean, that's the kind of tools that are start to be used, you know, about how do we gain power? It excuses. And this has been studied, you know, people, uh, you know, to, when the world wars were, were being fought, even here in America, there was lots of literature that dehumanized, you know, the Japanese dehumanized mm -hmm. the Germans because, you know, you're killing them. So, it, you know, you, it makes it easier to not think of them as humans that it justifies, you know, treating them badly in some slightly different version of that. I think is happening in some of our discourse where, you know, if they're really, you know, non-human or whatever, then I can say whatever I want. In fact, I should say bad things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, everything's justified because, you know, they are so bad. Everything that I do is justified. And I basically now, I don't have to feel bad about anything I say or do with regard to them because they don't count, you know, right? right. That's sort of mm -hmm. the idea. Um, and so, and I, don't, think... I mean, do you think we do that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, and I think that we do that, um, you know, claim that we do that because we have to hold people accountable or for social justice or what have you. But dehumanization and um, accountability are totally different things, you know. Um, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, I don't you know do... what we mean by that, too, though, when we say we need to hold them accountable. Um, tip, I mean, tip. what does that mean? I mean, typically that means I need to make sure justice is happening in this situation to this person, well, right? Or what, what does that mean? I think what I guess what I would think is like accountability means it's okay to have a conversation about it. It's okay to express your opinion about it. Um, so you get you know, get to hear both sides of the conversation and work through it just like you would with in a mm -hmm. relationship, mm -hmm. you know, but to make them subhuman um, is a whole different ballgame. I, um, I saw this quote in Brene's Brown Braving the Wilderness that I thought was pretty good that spoke to this. Um, and she says, Maybe this will help. Dehumanizing and holding people accountable are mutually exclusive. Humiliation and dehumanizing are not accountability or social justice tools. They're emotional offloading at best, emotional self-indulgence at worst. And if our faith asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, that should include the politicians, media, and strangers on Twitter with whom we most violently disagree. When we desecrate their divinity we desecrate our own and we betray our faith mm. yeah i think that's a good it's a good way to say it that i can't dehumanize someone else without negatively impacting my own soul and mm -hmm. spirit right um you know there's a couple there's examples of that that i think are uh that um that i don't think that we think that's true i you know i think that almost we feel like the righteous thing to do 
is mm-hmm. dehumanize them because they're not human. Uh, and, you know, that I, I do believe that, you know, if we're going to dehumanize them, then we can't. Accountability is a human thing, and we can't do both. As she's saying, you got to pick a lane, right? Uh, right? Um, yeah. And we yeah, and we do that outside of the political realm, of course, as well. I mean, we do it, you know, to scapegoat, to gaslight, whatever. Mm-hmm. We do it in all sorts of different ways, um, and it a lot of the same, a lot of the same uh, motivations. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the piece is tech, the technical solution versus the adaptive solution, mm-hmm. and it that was seems. <laughs> Well, I mean, I was talking to to so Trey Herwick, pastor at at the Refuge Church, about basically I was talking about churches, basically and church strategy, and I think many in the le- church leadership world, basically there's discussion of character of the leader, which is important, and there's discussion of tr- strategy, which basically just gets called leadership. Like if you have character and you have a strategy, then everything's good. I mean, what else do you need? Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, you know, my point would be strategy doesn't necessarily mean you can lead an organization towards the realization of the strategy. There's this other thing. We treat strategy almost like a technical solution. Like we pick a new strategy, we have mm-hmm. a conversation about it, we make up a strategic plan, and it's almost like this this golden solution that's fallen from the right. sky. But then the next week, everybody comes into the office, and what do you do differently? And if the right. answer is nothing then the strategy was meaningless. It just made you feel better for a while. And you can talk right. about it and you can whatever, but it's the leading towards the strategy. That's, a, that's, that's the missing piece. And so he sent me that stuff about from uh, Ronald Heifetz about technical solution and adaptive solution. And I do think and that's it, right. That's a golden pair, you know, it's a golden bullet or silver bullet rather uh, approach to things. And it takes buy-in and it takes people willing to do the hard work. Right. And, and it, that's and right. It takes their, my except their right. responsibility that's in right. it. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's our right. responsibility in it. Yeah. That's you know, right. to make it better. So, that's you right. know, just like our politicians, you know, they can make promises and they can have even a great strategy. But until it's implemented and everybody buys into it and they're willing to do the hard work that it takes to actually make it happen, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Right. And so I think that's what we, but we want to believe, even church members want to believe there's some golden solution that if you have, you know, a pastor with character and a good strategy, then our church will be great. And I don't really have to do much. And that's just that we don't live in that world, uh, that, you know, this, the only kind of real solutions to big, hairy problems and and long-term systemic are adaptive, that everybody has to be involved in some way. I mean, another way to say it would be if, if we have a strategy, uh, that gets announced or promulgated, and then everybody in the church just acts the same. Nobody changes. Well, then no, nobody changes. Nothing changes, right. and you haven't you haven't done anything. And the same is true with politics as well. Mm-hmm. That you know, if if ninety nine point nine percent of the population doesn't do anything any different, then the society isn't going to be very much different, uh, and the election isn't uh, you know doesn't fix everything. Um, but I do think this sense of um, adaptive versus technical kind of does get into the same discussion we were having before of the solution either is involving me or it's delivered to me. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets back to the, I, I want the solution delivered to me, not involving me. So people come right. into your office, right? Do they right. want a solution delivered 
uh, I mean, I, they don't come in and say that probably, but oh, I, I there might be a few of those that have come <laughs> in and said that. How are you going to fix me? <laughs> I'm like, ooh, it's not yeah. my job. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and I it's mean, not even really in your. Believe that. They really yeah, it's believe not like that, they could but... pay you extra and get you to you know do some more stuff. To, it's just not possible, right? Right, right, and the hardest people to work with and they don't last very long to be honest with you are the ones that are unwilling to do the work themselves the hard Mm -hmm. work you Mm -hmm. know to get their hands dirty you know to um work with other people in their families or their you know organization or what have you Mm -hmm. um and do the work do the hard work yeah i mean i've certainly known people who have gone to counselor and just are frustrated because I just want the counselor to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think that's, in other words, they just have, they have, I want a technical solution. I want to go and they know what to do. They're going to tell me what to do and that'll fix the problem. Or I've had that situation, uh, which I'm sure you've experienced, or somebody in my family really needs to go to counseling. Um, and that's the technical solution for the whole family. And the, some somebody in the family might need to go to counseling, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my solution for my family is to get my my spouse or my child or my parent into counseling. Uh, and A, that's probably not super mm-hmm. possible. And B, even if you know somebody you were able to get them to go if they're not going to participate or if they don't see them, um, you know, then. Th- so that's probably not super helpful. And so maybe a more helpful thing is I go to counseling and figure out how to live helpfully in this situation, assuming it doesn't change. Exactly. And then, you know, you can only be responsible for how you respond to other people in your family. And if you change, other people in your family will change. We don't know if it'll be for the good or the bad or mm-hmm. the ugly. We don't right. know. But then, you know, we can only be responsible for ourselves. It's not helpful to be for responsible for other people. And mm-hmm. I think we often try to do that. And does Yeah, <laughs> which kind of gets me to um, the, you know, at the close, we talk, Jesus talks about, I bring up, you know, the, the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, it says, don't try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. You know, first take the mm-hmm. plank out of your eye. Uh, and the implication being you're, you're never going to be done taking stuff out of your eye. You know, you're probably never going to get to the point of taking something out of your neighbor's eye because you'll always be finding something um, Mm -hmm. right in your own. Um, So do we do we believe that? Do we believe that? um, First of all, there's a plank. I mean, we I think we reverse it. There's planks in your eye. I might ask back, but I'm looking at the plank. Right. Don't, Don't we reverse it? Right. But I think I think it also comes down to how much do we want to know, you know, how much reality do we really want, you know, are about, we our eyes, you our, about our own eyes, you mean? About our own eyes. Are we willing? Yeah, yeah. Are we willing yeah. to really yeah. dig down and look? Do we really yeah. want to know? Yeah. Because it's a lot easier to point point out the plank in the other person's eye, you know. But and you might be right um, about it. I do think you're right. I think we don't. I don't want. I want to live in a world where I don't have planks in my eye. Uh, and you know, maybe I had planks in my eye in the past, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I, the story I tell myself. Uh, but I think that kind of comes down to grace. Um, mm-hmm. do I really apprehend grace, you know, the meaning of grace, the reality of grace for me, 
And if I do, then I, I have an increased capacity to be honest about my own imperfections. And, and if, I, if I'm not, then I'm going to be more, not only more apt to condemn others, I'm either going to condemn myself unhelpfully or I'm going mm-hmm. to gloss over my own stuff so that I don't condemn myself. Because and I just think that at the end of the day, so many things in our Christian life comes down to, do I apprehend grace or not? Right. But I think that's a process in itself as well. First, we don't want to look at the ugliness that we hold or, you know, the weaknesses or what have you. It's too hard for us. And then once we do, once we become more self, self-aware, it's like, ooh, that's awful. That's hard. That's And then I think after you work through that process, you know, it's more of the acceptance and the grace and the, oh yeah, we live in a fallen world. And it, it feels like it's a process and you have to work through the work through yeah. that to get. And, um, you know, often we, um, you know, with others as well, you know, we see it, we're critical, we're judgmental. And then once we see, um, our own weaknesses and our own, you know, stuff, it's like, oh, we're not that different from the other, you right. know, and yeah. if we can offer others grace, we can offer ourselves grace and vice versa. But it is a process, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's hard, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the two things that obviously conde- condemnation, because Jesus starts that passage mm-hmm. with basically condemn not, lest you be condemned, and then your standard of condemnation will be used against you. Um, and then victimization. I mean, if you, if I'm conscious of the uh, ocean of grace that's afforded to me, then it's harder for me to live in a victim in a victim stat status, Absolutely. and it's harder for me to condemn other people. I mean, it should be, and mm-hmm. the, to the extent that I'm able to continue to do that, I think uh, is to the extent that I'm not really grasping God's grace for me, the reality of it, the immensity of it, the depth of it. And I think it's also really hard for us to move forward. You know, we get stuck there, you know, when when we aren't able to extend grace to ourselves and others, you know, and we or we don't see our own deficiencies. It's really hard to move forward and grow as a human being in grace, obviously. And yeah, just in we're life. almost invested in being stuck because mm-hmm. we're right and they're wrong. So, you know, why move? Just be stuck here, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Stuck in that victim mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that's, uh, I kind of want to leave it on that note of grace that, uh, you know, if I realize to the extent to, to which I need grace, I live in, uh, I live under grace and all the grace that's afforded me, mm-hmm. all of that works against a lot of the dynamics that we've been talking about and allows me to look at myself, you know, frees me to look honestly at myself. Uh, knowing that, you know, I am forgiven, that God has grace for me, and I can be honest about the things I need to address, and then at that point I can just look at my own eyes, you know, in the mirror, and just not have to look at somebody else's. Um, so let's leave it there. Um, thanks, Susan. It's been a great, great discussion. Our you know, half an hour has raced by. Uh, and so um, we'll, we'll close this edition of On Culture. Uh, if you haven't read uh, the, the uh, Dispatch from the Embassy, uh, How Things Don't Change, I'd uh, love for you to do that and to subscribe uh, at theembassy.substack.com. Uh, until next time, well, we'll see you then. Grace and peace. You've been listening to On Culture, a podcast of the Embassy Newsletter. 
Have a question? Send it to theembassy at substack.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.